We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. We were four guys that uh, I met Paul and said, do you want to join me band, you know? And then George joined. And then Ringo joined. We were just a band who made it very, very big, that's all. Now, what is your impression of Canada? It's very nice, yeah. I like it. Where do you go from here? Where do we go from here? We go to Jacksonville. Jacksonville where? Florida? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I thought you had a trip to Montreal somewhere in Oh, between. yeah, sorry. Montreal and then Jacksonville. I thought you went out to Canada. Now, your first trip to Canada wasn't to Vancouver. Yes. You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 163, The Undefinable Spirit, John Arnone, Us and Them, Canada, Canadians, and the Beatles. Come on in, have a seat. Join the conversation. Hello and thanks for joining us in another episode of the Undefinable Spirit series on The Sill. Regrettably, Harry, my funkier sidekick, won't be joining us today as he just returned from Mexico a couple of days ago. He'll definitely be on the next episode. Today's guest is talking with us from his cozy cottage on the shores of Ontario, Canada's Georgian Bay. He was born in Toronto less than two weeks after John F. Kennedy's inauguration to Italian immigrants who left their southernmost province of Calabria in the mid-1950s, eventually marrying here a few years later. They raised four sons, including our guest, John Arnone, the second of four who, among other things, grew up becoming a lifelong enthusiast and ardent admirer of another group of four, the Beatles, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Three years ago, John retired before sitting down to pen his first published book, and the main subject of today's conversation, Us and Them, Canada, Canadians, and the Beatles. Summing up John's 35-year working career, he studied journalism at Ryerson University in Toronto, graduating at the age of 22 in 1983, loaded up his Datsun and drove to Yorktown, Saskatchewan, where he kicked off his career and what would become a five-year stint as a sports editor and news and feature writer for a local newspaper. In 1988, he moved up to the Ford Motor Company and Jaguar Cars until 2007, which included living in the U.S. for a couple of years before returning home to live in Oakville, Ontario, close to and working from Ford Headquarters Canada. Next stop was Bombardier Aerospace for the next five years and then on to six more years with Mitsubishi Motors to close out his 35-year career in 2018. So, at the relatively tender age of 57, after decades of extensive and frequent traveling around the globe in a life that despite meeting some great people and developing some intense friendships, he realized by his own admission that his working career had been a myth of personality. Hi, John, and thanks for joining us today. Well, hello, Peter, and thank you for that long introduction. You get into some areas that uh, really strike a chord, and I'm happy that you've done so. It's a good way to start this discussion. I have a couple of personal questions I'd like to ask you prior to discussing your book. And before I ask my first question, I will tell you that John is my first cousin and the older brother of architect Robert Arnone, who was a guest on the sill in January 2018 on TSP 81. So, John, as I mentioned, you said something that really piqued my interest, describing your journalism career experience as a myth 
of personality. Care to expand a bit on that meaning or significance behind that phrase and how you overcame or are overcoming that myth? The part of my career that involved journalism, pure and simple, was far from a myth. It was hardcore news. It was uh, deciphering what was relevant in uh, a news story and in feature writing, and I enjoyed that enormously. It's what I studied, and it's what I pursued, but for all too short a period of time. Journalism, to me, is bona fide and honorable way to make a living. You support communities. You inform the general public, and you do your very best to be balanced and forthright in your approach to writing and research. So that part of my career, which was around six years, in both in York and Saskatchewan, and uh, as a magazine editor in Ontario, was very fulfilling, no doubt about it. It's what happened next that sort of was the start of a slide of um, not so much integrity, although that word does come to mind, more so that the role of a corporate communicator or in public relations, as it's more commonly referred to, is to disseminate news more from a one-sided perspective. In other words, you are publicizing and communicating people, processes, products that are meant to achieve a profit motive, right? And so you're really at the behest of shareholders and corporate executives who are driven to get that message across. And fundamentally, they leave that up to their external communicators. And that was me. So I call it a myth of personality because I see myself on the evening news on a television broadcast. I read my quotes in newspapers. I hear my voice on the radio. And what I'm ostensibly doing is I'm walking a very linear path of messaging. I am talking about something that I'm detached from, but has become part of my reality. It's the way I put food on the table. It's the way I make a living. It's a long way of saying, Peter, that I found journalism to be more honorable. And this is not to say that the role of a public relations practitioner is dishonorable or is untrue. Far from it. It's just not a reflection of the creative soul. The creative soul that resides within me is very much about expression and writing and providing my perspective. You don't do that when you're on the payroll of large corporations. And maybe I should never have pursued it, but I did. And I did it for 30 years. And I'm very proud of some of the work that I did. I launched some very fine products. I supported charities. I looked after thousands upon thousands of individuals. Well, I didn't look after them, but I supported messaging that would support them in their day-to-day lives. And for that, I have no regrets. But the fact that it wasn't from me, it was me being sort of this, um, almost this spokesperson or something else, an entity which either mattered or didn't matter to me, but it, it always had to sound relevant and forthright. So it, to me, it's a long way of saying, <laughs> I do tend to speak in long sentences, a long way of saying that uh, I would rather have not done that. I would rather have stayed as a journalist. And I won awards as a journalist. I was the AJAC National Journalist of the Year in Canada in 1987. I won a main prize with the Saskatchewan Reporters Association. So I really found that to be a more fulfilling livelihood. 
Sure. And I completely understand what you're saying. Whether there are regrets about it or not, it is part of who you are and it's made you what you are today. So those experiences are kind of invaluable, even if a lot of them aren't the ones that we necessarily desire, at least looking back in retrospect. You lost your father, and I was out west at the time, a year before you graduated university in a very sudden and unexpected manner. And five years later, as you mentioned, in 1987, you were named Canada's top auto journalist, an award you very lovingly and respectfully dedicated in his honor. How would you describe your life or your relationship with your father leading up to his passing? And what has it given or left you with today? Well, I'll start with the award, then I'll segue to my dear father, so I was named Canada's top automotive journalist at a very swanky function at the King Edward Hotel in Toronto. Took me totally by surprise. And back then, $1,000 was a significant prize to win for that award. But as I approached the microphone, nervous and unsure of what to say, all I can think about was my dad. He had passed a few years earlier. Not only my dad, but Ryerson University, or back then it was called Ryerson Polytechnic, um, my ability to pay for my final year, my degree year in my journalism studies was hindered by the fact that the family's chief breadwinner, my father, had passed. And so I was made aware by the late Joan Donaldson, uh, who, by the way, was the founder of CBC News World, that Ryerson had what they call the bereavement bursary. And I went to the chairman's office and I was given this bursary and it allowed me to fund my final year of studies. And so when I got up to that microphone four years later, the first thing I can think of was donating the entire prize money back to that bursary that allowed me to continue my studies. And so it became known as the Mario Arnone Bereavement Fund. And I said at the microphone that night that I hope no students will ever have to tap into this, i.e. not have to suffer the way my brothers and I did at the loss of our dad. But in fact, the fund was spent within a couple of years. So yes, there's other students at Ryerson who were able to use the bereavement fund to complete their studies as well. So that's sort of the background to the award and to my reaction to winning the award that cold February evening in Toronto. For my dad, well, uh, my book, Us and Them, is dedicated to my father. I spend quite a bit of time in my dedication page describing what a profoundly important man he was in my life and to the lives of my three brothers. And so, really, you can extend that and say, to a large extent, everything I've done since is really dedicated to him. All of my achievements, all of my accomplishments, I really think of him first because losing a dad at a young age really focuses the mind on what you're lacking, but also in some strange way gives you the strength to overcome that. And that certainly happened to me. We lost our dad at a young age. And as for me, you know, I didn't make all great decisions. I made some bad ones, but some good ones too. And thankfully that kept me out of jail or out of rehab clinics. And that's a good thing. But I also want to give my mom and my brothers a lot of credit for helping me keep it all together in the years since. I completely get that. And I recall that time as well. He's the only family member whose funeral I missed because I was out west at the time. And I remember your dad quite fondly. I'd had a life with him as well, being my uncle. And wherever your dad is, I hope he's listening. 
He'd certainly be happy to hear what you just described about him and uh, his influence on you then and now. Moving on to your book, I read your book a couple of weeks ago as soon as it was released. I have to say that uh, your attention to detail was very apparent as I admittedly reminisced on the many segments I was familiar with and very pleasantly surprised by the many that I was not. How difficult and or gratifying was it to write this book? Well, I started from a position that everyone makes a connection to music. And then it occurred to me that as Canadians, we are historically connected to the music of the Beatles. And I wanted to pursue that. I wanted to prove to myself and then to others that this was not just a small piece of trivia or perhaps a question for a game of Trivial Pursuit, but more profound than that, more comprehensive than that. And in fact, I have found uh, nearly 70 years of connections between Canada and the Beatles. And I guess some of them are known sparsely. Some fragments might be available in the media, perhaps as black and white images. And, you know, we all have our tales of the hysteria at their concerts in Canada. But there's so much more than that. And the way I positioned it is that we know that the UK and the US were the formative places that launched and then, I guess, propelled the careers of the Beatles, both as a band and as solo artists. But there's no other country that holds what I call a solid second-tier footing in their success. You can't write a book of perhaps more than a chapter or two about the Beatles in Argentina or the Beatles in Japan or the Beatles in Norway. It's just not possible because the depth of connections don't exist with those so-called second-tier markets or second-tier nations. But Canada is solidly on top behind the U.S. and the U.K. as the formative place for the arc of their career, their beginnings, their middle, and then, of course, that led to their success, and then, of course, their dissolution. And Canada actually had a part to play in their breakup, and that is as profound as it gets. And I understand exactly what you're saying because I was in elementary school when I actually heard the first Beatles songs on the radio airwaves here in Canada before, as you point out in your book, before even American audiences were essentially introduced to them with an estimated uh, 73 million viewers watching them live from New York on Ed Sullivan that February 9th, 1964 night. And since you were just a toddler at the time, do you recall your very first came into my life moment that ignited your interest in them and or their music? I do. It's as clear today as it was when I was nine years old. My brothers and I spent a lot of time visiting our grandparents, and we would often go on errands. Um, my job for one particular summer was getting bread at the local bakery for my grandmother. And en route back to her home on the short walk to the bakery, was a department store. Back then, it was called Kresge's, formerly known as SS Kresge and Company. And I saw a commotion just inside the glass doors on the street side of Kresge's. And I didn't understand why there would be a commotion at a department store. So with that warm loaf of bread tucked under my little arms, I meandered my way into the store, something I didn't do very often. I didn't often go into, into department stores at age nine, but I did. And there they were. There were the Beatles in a boxed set of the Let It Be album, rows upon rows on the wall 
of the Kresge's and right there in the music department. And in the pit of the music department, there was a fellow who was spinning a turntable and he was playing a Let It Be album. Now, bear in mind, the band had already broken up. So this is sort of post-facto Beatles. And in fact, my whole Beatles journey has been after the fact. I call it a great journey of regression. I call it Johnny Come Lately to the Beatles party because that's what it was. I'm not alone. If you inhale your first Beatles breath in 1970, it means that you've missed seven years of Beatles music and the greatest seven years, perhaps, in the history of music. So it's an act of regression, but I'm not alone. As I mentioned, I'm among millions, perhaps tens of millions of latter-day Beatles fans who got the bug and uh, never got cured of it. Yeah, I was quite fortunate. I grew up right in the middle of it. And back to your book on this as well. Your now 29-year-old daughter fondly recalls you teaching her the words to one of the Beatles' more than 200 original songs titled If I Fell in a Bathtub when she was two, quite figuratively adding that uh, you were bathed in their music all of your life. Your book makes your eternal attachment to them and their music abundantly clear. Although it seems to me that you've taken a step further and made it a national embodiment for every Canadian to know and perhaps cherish. Is that a fair assessment? I think it's more than fair, Peter. And my daughter was probably the last person on earth who was surprised that my first book should be about the Beatles. I poked the Beatles bear. That's what I call it. Poking the bear. You know, you get a reaction, right? And the more I did that in my research, the more these stories became better and better and better. There are literally dozens upon dozens of profound connections of the band and Canada and Canadians. If you looked at this as a thesis, a dissertation, I look at the contribution of Canada and Canadians to the music, art, history, and phenomena of the Beatles as a band and as solo artists, and then in parentheses, I also examine what they gave Canada in return. I can give you lots and lots of examples, Peter. I don't know if, if that's where you want to go with this because I don't you know, want to sort of spend my time with you just discussing stories upon stories, but there are some beauties. I mean, it begins in 1953. George Harrison's family, his uncle, and then later his sister, moved to Ontario and then his sister later to Quebec. And it's from Quebec that his older sister Louise would get letters from her mom learning about George's early Beatles experiences and successes. And Canada Post is what's delivering the message about her soon-to-be very, very famous brother. Mm-hmm. Tell that story about Eric Clapton. Jeez, oh, don't get me started on Eric Clapton. My goodness. Um, there are many stories about Eric Clapton because he weaves in and out of the Beatles' careers as a band and as solo artist. I mean, he was a war child, and his father was born in Montreal, was a Canadian soldier born in Montreal. And although that's not very well known, and even if it is known, um, Eric Clapton does not identify as a Canadian. We know that. But I take it literally. I take, I take the biology literally, and he is half Canadian. And so there are many, many stories about Eric Clapton in my book, because not only was he George Harrison's best friend, not only did he marry George Harrison's wife, but he's the first guitarist to play on a Beatles album, on the White Album. He co-wrote a song with George Harrison while Eric was part of the band Cream. 
he has played with all of the Beatles, um, survivors and those who have passed in their solo careers, both on albums, in concert. He took a trip to Prince Edward Island with George Harrison's wife. Patty Boyd was still married to George Harrison for his half-brother's funeral. And the book expands on all of these points in great detail. And now I have to be careful not to make this a book about Eric Clapton because he was never a member of the Beatles. I make that very clear. The chapter that he's most uh, often spoken of in the book is a chapter called The White Album's Two and a Half Canadians. And he's the half Canadian. There was also, there was also um, a sax player from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, who played on The White Album. And there was a fiddle violinist player who was from Ontario who played on the White Album. So you've got two full-blown Canadians and a half-Canadian on the Beatles' 1968 White Album. And musical accomplishments aside, because I know there's an interweaving of many stories here, I asked specifically about Eric Clapton because one of the things that always impressed me about his association with the Beatles had nothing to do with the music per se. It had more to do with his relationship with George Harrison, with whom he remained good friends right to the end of George's life. And I always thought, what a couple of classy guys that they can share not only music to the level that he did, but the woman they both loved, they were able to separate that from their friendship and not let it interfere in their friendship. And in many ways, it actually strengthened their friendship. So that was my specific reason for asking about Eric Clapton. Now, in terms of stories, what compelled you to write this book? How did you experience the process? And what, if anything, is your hope for what readers will gain or understand from reading it? Um, what I hope readers gain from this is a, a sense of pride and a sense of belonging to the Beatles history as Canadians. We probably don't give a lot of conscious thought to how we as a people or how country was involved in the careers and lives of the Beatles. And it's good to know because it is an important part of our history. I was never happy with the way Canadian history was taught in our schools. To this day, I don't understand why we were taught the Greek and Roman names for our constellations instead of the beautiful indigenous interpretations of the stars in the sky when the indigenous story is the Canadian story, not the Greek and Roman story. So I guess in, in that way, um, I wanted Canada to understand its rightful place in the history of the Beatles more than any author has done thus far. And that was an important part of it to me, because apart from having a passion for the Beatles, the other passion I have is Canadian history. In fact, my daughter's degree is in Canadian history. It runs in the family. Uh, my brothers and I are both fans of proper Canadian history, and the Beatles were a part of that, and we were a part of theirs. And so another small example, Paul McCartney's first time on stage was at age 12. He and his family, uh, that be his mom and dad and his brother Michael, were in Wales at a family sort of campground. And he decides with his brother to get up on stage and sing an Everly Brothers song. And he did so at age 12. So it was his first time on stage. He didn't win the talent competition. But it's who owned the campground that was of interest to me. It was owned by a fellow who was a veteran of the Canadian Army who actually lived in Toronto. He was a South African, but lived in Toronto for a few years, um, enrolled in the Army at age 15. He lied about his age and joined our brave Canadian soldiers in the killing fields of France and Belgium until he returned to England, got his mother back home, who was living in Toronto, as was he as a youngster, and decided to start up 
a business of running family campgrounds. And at another one of his campgrounds, and we're talking about a fellow named Billy Butlin, uh, William Haygate Butlin is his full name. It was at another one of his campgrounds in England where Ringo Starr got the call from Brian Epstein asking him to join the Beatles. Ringo's band, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, were playing. In fact, they had done so for several summers at the Butlins campgrounds. And it was there where he actually left the Hurricanes and drove back to Liverpool to join the Beatles. So there's a Canadian connection, again, to the founding of the Beatles. There's an, an even more profound connection when you consider what a Canadian didn't do. A man named Carol Levy was uh, raised in Vancouver, British Columbia, lived in the Yukon Territory for a while, and uh, was a real extrovert and uh, entrepreneur, and he became a radio personality in B.C., but then was struck by wanderlust and decided to move to England. And he did, and he convinced the BBC to run a talent competition. And it was at one of these talent competitions that John Lennon and the Quarrymen tried out. It was 1957. And they lost. But they believed they should have won because the band that beat them had brought a bunch of supporters, busloads of supporters, because they were using a, a clapping meter to determine the winner. And of course, they had more supporters, and they won, and Lennon and the Quarrymen didn't. Well, John didn't take it very well. He took the Canadian to task backstage and said, hey, you robbed us. And what Carol Levy did was he said to them, listen, uh, you may have got a raw deal here, but keep at it. You guys are okay. <laughs> Fast forward two years, now John's got another band called Johnny and the Moondogs, and he's got recent recruits, both guitar players, Paul McCartney and George Harrison, and they're now in Manchester at another one, this time a televised version of the talent competition. And this time, they didn't win nor did they lose, although they did very well apparently as a threesome. They didn't have a drummer at the time. But again, Carol Levy had two opportunities, one with Lennon and one with Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison to snag them and maybe give them a career, an early career, a successful career as sort of an entertainment group for the UK public, but didn't do it. In other words, he let them slip out of his hands. And thank goodness he did, because neither Lennon and the Quarrymen nor Johnny and the Moondogs were very good. And if they had catapulted to sort of national fame by being on either the radio or televised talent competition and got to the finals, we may never have had the Beatles. So the fact that this Canadian who once uh, lived in the Yukon Territory, if you can imagine that, the fact that this Canadian let them slip out of his hands was a blessing of untold proportions. So we can thank a Canadian for not preempting the Beatles. And before we get off this, there's one final story that I would like you to tell listeners, and it deals with what is probably the greatest album or rock album of our lifetime. And you've got a great story about the name of that album. Can you tell that before I move on? Yeah, I'd love to, Peter. It's perhaps the most compelling aspect of my research. So let's go back to 1966. Toronto is the only Canadian city where the Beatles are playing in their final tour. Now, they're about four cities away from wrapping it up as a touring band. We all know that their last concert was in Candlestick Park in San Francisco. 
So they're about four concerts away from that. They're in Toronto. They're playing two shows. And they overnighted, which was rare for them to overnight in the city. And in the 24 hours that they were in Toronto, their security detail was led by the OPP. And the OPP put a veteran sergeant in charge of the Beatles security detail. Now, it's interesting because this sergeant wasn't a big fan of the Beatles. He probably disapproved of, you know, the long hair and the references to drugs. Because don't forget, this is 66 now. We're talking about a very different band. They were no longer the yeah, yeah, yeah. It was more about compelling musical structure and deep and profound lyrics. So he wasn't a big fan, but yet the good OPP sergeant and the band got along marvelously, really, really well. In fact, so well that it's been suggested that either this Ontario Provincial Police Sergeant or a member of his detail gave them OPP patches. Now, if you live in Ontario, you're familiar with the OPP crest. And in fact, that made its way onto the photograph in the gatefold, uh, the inner inner part of the uh, of the Sergeant Pepper, the Only Hearts Club band album, and it's sitting on Paul McCartney's sort of shoulder, the OPP batch. But here's where the story gets really, really interesting. The name of the Ontario Provincial Police Sergeant was Pepper. So he was Sergeant Pepper. And within four months of the Beatles leaving Toronto, they began work on the album Sergeant Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band. Now, there are musicologists who have studied this, and they come out sort of in the middle on this one. They're not saying for certain that this Ontario police officer was the naming inspiration of, you know, perhaps the most seminal, important album of the 1960s. But they're not saying he wasn't either. They're kind of in the middle on this one. And so I respect that. And I'll make that very clear in my book. This is a possibility. It's not entirely confirmed. And in fact, when you really delve deeper into it, most of the mythology around the naming of the Sgt. Pepper album and whether it was this Ontario Sgt. Pepper is really discussed in Canada. It's not big in international Beatles forums. It's sort of this Canadian mythology that we'd like to hold dear because if it is true, and it may be, it's very profound in the history of the Beatles. Sure, and it's almost too coincidental to ignore it. You just brought me back memories. I still remember the day I walked into a library in 1967. I was in grade 10 at the time, and I'll never forget finding that album on the library shelves and putting on those clunky headphones they had back then and putting the needle to the LP for the very first time. I just sat there and kind of my mouth agape because I was just so impressed with something so original and to actually introduce all these classical style musicians uh, into the uh, opening number, you know, Sgt. Peppers and so on. And of course, A Day in a Life, well, nothing more needs to be said about that. So moving on from the book, I just wanted to, on a more personal level, I wanted to ask you, what keeps you engaged with life and those people that are closest to your heart now? Well, first of all, I love my life. I love being retired after working nonstop for 35 years. It really, um, it's a dream, really, in many ways, to wake up every morning on my own terms and deciding, you know, what magic to bring to my world each and every day or what not to bring into my world each and every day. And that's sort of 
One of the reasons why I decided to become an author this late in life, I think it's something that I, I mean, I've always been writing. I mean, writing has been at the core of my existence now for more than 40 years. So I've written so much um, newsletters, magazines, speeches, um, communication strategies, uh, papers, studies. I have done so much writing in my life, but it's too little of it has been you know, writing that engages me in the content, right? So that's what I enjoy doing. I enjoy engaging a little bit of me in content that would appeal to other people as well. And in this case, to Canadians. But, you know, you have international listeners as well. And I would make this point that if you thought you knew everything about the Beatles, or if you know someone who thinks they know everything about the Beatles... I've got a real surprise for you because uh, the book, Us and Them, Canada, Canadians and the Beatles, takes you down roads that you didn't even know were paved yet. I mean, it's really an eye-opener. And uh, my first review, in fact, uh, those are the opening lines. This book is an eye-opener. So I was very happy with that. Among other things, Peter, you know, uh, you're a father, I'm a father. Um, my child is everything to me. I love and adore my daughter, Tara Ann. She means everything to me. She is what keeps me grounded and happy. I have a wonderful wife. We've been married for nearly 40 years. Uh, talk about staying grounded. That's one way to do it. Um, I have 11 nieces and nephews, all of whom are really well-adjusted. They're seemingly happy, uh, pursuing their passions in a myriad of ways, mostly centered around being creative, like my daughter, who is a proofreader and a book editor. Uh, I just love observing their very fertile minds. I love watching them make mistakes. I love watching them pick themselves up and uh, seeing kind of a repeat of um, some of my childhood as well. Well, not just a repeat, but an actual improvement in many cases, right? Oh, I hope so. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> and uh, I did ask you a question on a personal level, which was on the very positive side. And I'm going to be a little bit contrarian here. And I'm now going to ask you maybe a more difficult question. I don't know. But my final question is, what would you say is the single greatest regret in your life if you have one? Well, I think, as I mentioned in the introduction, I mean, is it a regret? I guess in many ways it is, which is not to say I'm not thankful for the career that has got me to where I am. I worked very hard and I made a lot of great friends, but I think I would have probably made another career choice. Was I able to go back in time? I probably would have stuck it out as a journalist and continued along that path. So it's a regret, but it's not sort of a deep and simmering regret that I contemplate every day. It's just something that I now have more time to think about. Listen, the companies that I work for took good care of me. I got to see the world. I'm profoundly grateful for the friends that I've made, uh, the colleagues with whom I worked, and all of that. So there's no doubt that there are positives too. But I perhaps, and I guess my advice to um, anyone out there who has a career in journalism, it might not pay the best. It might be shrinking in many ways, especially as a print medium. But I would suggest you stick it out. And if you're going to go down the road of corporate communications, know that it's not nearly as satisfying as the life of a journalist. 
So in essence, like John Lennon said, life is what happens to you when you're making other plans. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And it's interesting that comment came from uh, one of his solo albums. And I wanted to make the point uh, before we close that you mentioned, you know, what do you learn from the book? And I, I was able to summarize it by suggesting that readers of Us and Them, Canada, Canadians and the Beatles, will never again listen to the albums Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band and the White Album, or even singles like Come Together, Give Peace a Chance, All Things Must Pass, Imagine, and Mull of Kintyre, without thinking about these masterworks in a purely Canadian context. Because I offer that in the book to those uh, particular songs or albums, and then many, many, many more. And it's funny because after the Beatles break up in 1970, their Canadian story soars to places completely unexplored in popular nonfiction. And I introduced characters like Tommy Chong and Jim Carrey, Martin Short, John Candy, David Foster, Neil Young, Jeff Healy, Robbie Robertson, Randy Bachman, all folded into the Beatles' very, very unique history after their breakup in 1970. But best of all, I also incorporate ordinary Canadians. Um, there was, she's passed away, a Cree elder from Alberta who spoke to John Lennon, not knowing who John Lennon was in May of 1969, because John had heard from his hotel room in Montreal that this particular woman was protesting on the grounds of the Alberta legislature, the living conditions of Indigenous people. And so John read about it, perhaps in the Montreal Gazette, since it was only one of two English-language papers in Quebec at the time, and got someone to contact her. Well, she got to the phone and didn't really know who he was, but he did say he would help her with her cause, but could she please explain it? And in response, she said, you know, it's a long-winded explanation, but it might suffice that I recite to you a Cree prayer that my grandmother would often say to me. And in this prayer that her grandmother would recite were the words imagine, sprinkled throughout the entire prayer. What does Lennon do? He grabs a pillowcase grabs a pen, and starts scribbling down what she is saying in English from the Cree translation. So it's entirely possible that a Cree elder named Lillian Shirt from the Edmonton area influenced the most profound solo song by a Beatle. Imagine. Maybe so, because John was uh, very much into that whole idea, well beyond peace. It was about caring for your fellow human beings. And as you mentioned earlier on in this podcast, the whole reference to the indigenous people and what they mean to this country, it was perfect kind of uh, meeting, so to speak, that is, as you say, possibly a motivation or a reason or part of one of the greatest peace songs that we know, which is yeah. John Lennon's Imagine. Yeah. And although we could go on about this because you and I have talked about it before off the podcast and so many times within family and friends and so on, the Beatles are never ending subject or a point of interest. Even though we're concluding this podcast because of the time factor, before we close, I do want to give you the opportunity to tell listeners anything you want uh, with regards to websites, events that may be happening in your life or plans that you have regarding the book, where to purchase it, what you might do with the book and so on. And any, as I said, websites or personal data that you want to give out. That's very kind. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. At this point in time, I will say that it's available on all major platforms, whether it's uh, Google, Amazon, iTunes. The publisher is Friesen Press. They're in Victoria, British Columbia. They have a website too. But 
I'm also promoting it on a website called BeatlesAndCanada.com. That's BeatlesAndCanada.com. And it'll deliver to anywhere in Canada, taxes included, for $35 a copy. The book is well over 300 pages. It includes nearly 40 photographs. It is completely annotated. There's a lot in there. It's perhaps the most comprehensive study of the Beatles and Canada ever written. And so BeatlesAndCanada.com. Not to sound cliche here, but in the end, the love you make is equal to the love you take. (laughs) That came to me. John, I don't know what else to say here beyond I've really enjoyed talking to you about this. I hope that those listening will also gain something from this exercise and knowing that your book is out there. As I said, I've read it. I'd recommend it to listeners if they're interested, not only in the Beatles, but in Canada, period, because, you know, we tend to be low key about a lot of things and not just the Beatles. So... On that note, John, I just want to say thanks very much for uh, taking the time to uh, talk to me today. And I will convey your hellos to uh, Harry as well. And unfortunately, as I said, he couldn't be here today, but he will be back. And on that note, John, I just want to say thanks again. And uh, take care. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.